Uh, There is a lot of talk about justice these days. Uh, When George Floyd uh, was killed by police in May, protesters took to the streets crying, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Windows were broken, fences were charged, uh, a police precinct uh, was set on fire. Later that summer, one, um, later that summer, just one state over, when policemen shot and seriously injured 29-year-old Jacob Blake, more protests ensued. Once again, protesters took to the streets, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And more buildings were set aflame. Well, as cities like Minneapolis and Kenosha were burning, so were large swaths of our country. Forest fires were decimating California, Oregon, and Colorado. And if you recall, earlier in the year, forest fires were ravaging Australia, too. I couldn't help but detect in these fires another form of protest, this one coming from the environment, its own version of no justice, no peace. What is justice? Our dictionaries will define justice as the right exercise of power and authority, and it's not a bad definition. But so often when we come to big concepts like justice or love, dictionaries don't do justice, right, to the words themselves. A few weeks ago, I heard an old 80s song on the radio, or to be more honest with Spotify, it's radio for millennials. And in this song by rock band Foreigner, lead singer Mick Jones sings, I want to know what love is. You know how it ends, right? I want you to show me. It sounds cheesy saying it. It's much better when you belt it out, maybe in your car. But there is a truth in what Jones is saying. When we come to big topics like justice or love, we're not looking for someone to dig up a dictionary and read what is written there. We are looking for an embodiment of this ideal. We're looking for a picture. Don't give me a definition. Capture my imagination. I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. I want to know what justice is, and I want you to show me. Well, the Bible does that for us. In fact, it does it on page one and two. The Bible shows us what the right exercise of power and authority looks like in action, in the beginning. On pages 1 and 2, the Bible paints us a picture where everything is in its right place, doing what it was designed to do, where power and authority are exercised rightly, just as God intended. If you have a Bible on hand, maybe in the pew or on your smartphone, you can open with me to Genesis 1 and follow along with me, because I'm going to refer to it uh, quite a bit here in this next section. The Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's verse 1. The reason anything exists at all is because God. He made it. Verse 2 then reads, The earth was formless and void. In Hebrew, it was tohu and bohu. I like that. I like the rhyme. It was formless and void, tohu and bohu, meaning there was no shape. There was no structure to anything, and it was empty. This sets the stage for God's creative work in verses 3 to 31. In these verses, we see God roll up his sleeves, as it were, right, and get to work. 
He brings order out of chaos. He creates spaces and he fills them. Now, God is not furnishing those spaces like we would our living rooms, putting in a couch or a coffee table. He's appointing rulers over those spaces. He's creating kingdoms, and then he is appointing kings and queens to rule over those kingdoms. He is establishing justice in the earth. He is showing us what it looks like when power and authority is exercised rightly in obedience to the sound of his voice. That's what we have here. Let's see how this unfolds. Day one, verses three to five, God separates light from darkness, and he calls the light day, and the darkness he calls night. Day two, God separates the waters from the waters. There's water up here, right, which is why it rains, and then there's water below, which is why there's springs that gush up from right, the earth. Essentially, what God is doing is separating the waters. He's creating sea and sky. Day three, God creates another space. Right? Dry land appears. Now remember, in the beginning, it was tohu and bohu. It was formless and void. But by the end of day three, it's not tohu anymore. It's not formless. God has created spaces. He's created structures. And now he's going to appoint rulers over those spaces. Days four to six, he's going to appoint governors. And he's going to give them jobs to do. Day four, verses 14 to 19 God makes the two lights, the greater light, which is what? The sun. To do what? To rule over the day. To rule over the light. He also creates the lesser light, which is the moon, right? To do what? It's to rule over, right, the night. To rule over the darkness. Day five. Perhaps you can anticipate where this is going. What does God make? To rule the sea and the sky. Well, of course, right, it's fish and it's birds. And he gives them this blessing, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the sea and the sky. And then day six, right? God makes creepy things and crawly things, right? Camels and koalas, caterpillars, and yes, us too, right? He makes us human beings, men and women, uh, made in his image. Chapter 1 ends with God standing back and surveying the work of his hands. The empty tableau has now been filled. Spaces have been created and God has filled them. Everything is in its right place doing what it was designed to do. Six times in this passage, God has declared its goodness But now, with everything complete, he pronounces his seventh and final benediction. It is very good. It is whole. It's complete. It's very good. There are many ways to describe the picture that is painted for us in Genesis 1. Very good being one of them. We could call it shalom. Right? it's a, it's a Hebrew word that is often translated peace, but it means more than that. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of human flourishing, wholeness, and delight. We could call it the kingdom of God. Right? Everything under his reign and rule, uh, doing what it was supposed to do. We could call it justice or righteousness, which are the same words uh, in Greek. 
We see power and authority exercised rightly. But let's zoom in uh, a little more into this picture. What does the Bible say about our place in creation and the power and the authority that God has entrusted to us? Well, the answer the Bible gives us is threefold. One, we're part of the created order. Two, we have a kinship with the creation. And three, we are kings for creation. The one, we're part of the created order. Isn't it true that the most obvious truths can sometimes be the soonest forgotten? We do not exist outside of creation, though we sometimes imagine that we do or live that way. We don't exist outside of creation. We are placed squarely within it. Creation doesn't belong to us. We are a part of it. We are not independent beings, but we belong to a greater interconnected, interdependent whole. And what we do in this whole affects us for good or for ill. And this is how God has designed it. Sometimes I think of Genesis 1 as God taking an empty lot and building a house on it. And that house has many rooms. There's rooms for us, of course, but there's rooms for others, too. In fact, many came before us and were blessed before us. Note that the blessing God pronounces on mankind in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, was pronounced on the birds and fish before us. Human beings enter in like the roommate who moves in at the very end. Now, is it our house? Of course, but it's everybody else's house, too. We are part of this created order, right? It's not just ours. Number two, we have a kinship with creation. Kin is one of those good southern words. It means family, relation. The Bible says we are kin with creation a number of ways. For starters, the Bible says that human beings were born on the same day as all other land creatures. We call that twins, right? We are twinning, as it were, with cows, koalas, chimpanzees. But our brotherhood and our sisterhood with the animal kingdom goes deeper than that. We eat the same food. We drink the same water. And as Genesis 2 tells us, we're even made of the same stuff. In the words of one writer, we have common ground because we are common ground. We have a kinship with creation. But that is not all. If we are kin with creation, we are also kings for creation. And you see this in verse 26 where God says, Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Of all the creatures on planet earth, God enters into a unique relationship with this one, right? With us. God makes us in his image, and he makes us in his image so that we can image him. I want you to consider this fact uh, from nature. Across the animal kingdom, creatures care for their own. There's nothing unique or special about that. Lions care for their cubs. Eagles care for their eaglets. Seals care for their pups, and human moms and dads care for their kids. 
However, human beings don't just care for their own. They care for the radically other, too. That's unique. Right? You will never see a lion care for an eagle. You'll never see an eagle care for a seal. But you will see human beings all around the globe doing just that. Caring for their own, of course, but caring for other species, too. No other creature on planet Earth does this and to this degree. There really is something special about us, about human beings. But what is it? Why do we not just care? Why do we care for our own, but not just our own, but for the radically other too? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. The answer the Bible gives, right, that God gives is this, that human beings are made in the image of God. There's something special about us that sets us apart. God enters into a special relationship with us so that we can know him and show him. Our relationship with God is supposed to be like that of a mirror. If I hold a mirror, the mirror is not me, but it reflects me. And if I hold it at a certain angle, if you were to look into the mirror, you would see my reflection in the face of that glass. So much that you could say, I see John in you. And that's the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with God. Creatures made in his image. To be in a face-to-face relationship with him so that his face is reflected out to the world around. So that his goodness and his beauty and his truth is reflected to the world around. So much so that people who look at us would say, I see God in you. That's what it means to be made in God's image. To bear his image, right? To reflect him. I see God in you. Which is why when we come to this word dominion in verse 26, we have to read it in that context. The word dominion here is not an open invitation to irresponsible exploitation. We are to rule and to exercise authority in the same ways that God would, right? as his image bearers. Our primary calling as image bearers acts as a governor or a constraint on any secondary calling. For example, ruling. What's more, God tells us that we're not just to rule uh, creation, but we are to till it, we're to take care of it and to keep it, to, to protect it. We see this in Genesis 2.15, right? What this implies is a relationship of mutual responsibility between human beings and nature. Right? Our dominion as image bearers should be understood more properly in the sense of responsible stewardship. Right? By definition, a steward is a person employed to manage another person's property, especially a large house or a state. God is the owner. The earth is the estate and we are the stewards. To the extent that God has given man a special place, it's the place of cooperator with God in the work of creation. But this is a responsibility as much as a right. It's a splendid universal communion that entails an obligation of care. I want to know what love is. I, know, I want to know what justice is, and I want you to show me. Well, Genesis 1 does that, doesn't it? It shows us what it looks like when everything is in its right place, doing what it was designed to do, when power and uh, authority are being exercised rightly. 
If Genesis 1 and 2 reveals a picture of what justice is, power and authority exercised rightly, we see that picture begin to deteriorate and disintegrate just one chapter later in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 tells the story of how things fall apart. Long story short, we turn our backs on God. We're still image bearers, we're still mirrors, but we're not facing God anymore. We're reflecting, but we're not reflecting Him. Not the way we're supposed to. A rebellion and our rejection of God leads to all kinds of breakdown in our relationships with God, with one another, within ourselves, and with the world around. Instead of being kings for creation, serving others, and stewarding what God has entrusted, we become kings over creation, acting as if we owned the place and using it uh, to serve our own selfish desires. When power is exercised in a way that violates God's standards, we call that injustice. And looking around the world, we see that injustice reigns. Kings who forget their places and the subjects they're supposed to serve, we call them tyrants. Instead of being kings for creation, we are more tyrannical in our rule. Well, as you read through the Bible, you begin to see how the fate of creation is tied up with the fate of God's image bearers, the ones who are supposed to care for it. So we go, so goes it. Cursed, uh, cursed is the ground. Right? It bears thorns and thistles. The flood story is the most obvious example of this. Right? We have the power to bring the whole house down. Right? Our sins uh, can take everything down with it if it weren't for grace. And in the New Testament, you hear Paul talking about how all of creation is groaning, eagerly awaiting our adoptions as sons. All of creation is groaning, longing for our reconciliation with God, longing for us to go home and to be reconciled with our Father. Now, why would that be? Why is all of creation groaning for that? Well, it's for this very reason. When we are brought back into a right relationship with God, when we're no longer having our face turned away from him, but we're brought back into a face-to-face relationship with God again, we're able to be and do what we're always meant to be and do, which is to image him properly, to reflect again his goodness, his beauty, his truth, his justice to the world around us. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. God sends his son into the world on a rescue mission to get people who have their backs turned uh, 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 on God to turn around. That's what the word repentance means, to turn around and to to be in a relationship with God again. A face-to-face relationship with God again. God so loved the world that he gave us his son. He sends a son to save the world and to save us. These two go together. Back in 2012, my wife and I moved from Boston to Burlington. We bought a house on Green Street in downtown Burlington, a college, a kind of a college neighborhood. 
We bought this house on Green Street and it had a little backyard. That backyard when we bought it was a when we bought it was a mud pit. Nothing was really growing there. It was tohu and bohu, you could say. It was formless and void. But we quickly got to work. We brought structure and order to that place. We put in a patio. We sowed some grass seed. We planted a garden. And the last thing that we did is we put a sprinkler in the middle of that garden, right, the kind that you hook up with a hose to the spigot, you know, the spout. Put a little sprinkler in the middle of that garden to keep it green and to keep it good. Now, when that sprinkler is connected to the source, the sprinkler takes in water and it spreads it all around, bringing life to all. But what happens if and when that sprinkler gets disconnected from the source? Well, the sprinkler runs dry and everything around it begins to die. That's what happens. And so it is with us. Because God planted a garden. And he put us in the middle of it. And he put us in the middle of it to rule it, to steward it, to keep it green and good. And for a while we did just that. But then we got disconnected. And when we did, we ran dry and everything around us began to die. The proof is all around us. But the good news is that God still wants a good green earth, you could say. He wants a world that is full of goodness and beauty and truth. A world full of justice. How is he going to get that? Well, it's not by bypassing the sprinkler system. He's going to get that by connecting the sprinkler system up again. By reconnecting what has been disconnected. Salvation, right? The solution to God's green earth involves us. It's getting us hooked up again. We are saved and we are also then part of a saving process, right? Hooked up again to to the source of all that is good and beautiful and true, the source of justice. We begin to become agents of it, like that sprinkler system. When we are brought back into that face-to-face relationship with God, we can begin to reflect it uh, out to the world again. As Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia puts it, Adam's race has done the harm, and Adam's race shall help to heal it. How do we get reconnected? Well, as John 3.16 shows, it's by God's grace, first of all. Right? It's his initiative. Right? He is the one doing the saving. And salvation comes to us as a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave. Right? It's presented to us. Salvation is presented to us as a person. This person is presented to us as a gift. And we receive this gift of reconciliation, of getting hooked back up with God again with the empty hands of faith. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved in order that we would do good works that we would water the yard. When we receive Jesus, we experience forgiveness. But more than that, we experience reconciliation. Being in a face-to-face relationship with God again, 
is profound because, as I've said, right, it means that we can image God the ways that we were meant to be and to do. You could think of it this way. Justice is what our justification is for. God justifies us. He brings us into a right relationship with, with us for a reason, and that reason is justice. It's justice is not a distraction from the gospel. It's what the gospel is aiming at. It's what it's aiming for. You know, the forgiveness of sins and hopes of heaven, those are great things, but the gospel doesn't end there. Uh, it, it's, uh, the gift is meant to draw us in. Uh, it's meant to hook us back up so that we could spread, all right, water out to the yard uh, again. Caring for the world uh, as God intended uh, in the beginning. At a practical level, what does that mean? Well, here are some concluding applications. I think we need to repent of our mindset that we are autonomous, independent actors. And we need to repent of the ways that, our, that we believe that our actions don't affect the greater fabric to which we are connected. I believe that Christians should be in the vanguard for environmental protection. Balancing the needs of people, but also the needs of the planet. There's some common sense things that we can do. Right? We can reduce waste, we can reuse, we can recycle, knowing that little things add up to make a big difference. I think there is irrefutable evidence that man-made global climate change is a reality. That there is a direct causation between carbon dioxide emissions and global temperature rise, shrinking ice sheets, sea level rise, ocean acidification, and extreme weather. Now these impacts will be felt disproportionately by the world's poor and by future generations. I've spent some time in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a country that has the population of America and, and a country the size of Iowa. Just think of that for a second. The, the population of America in Iowa... Now, when the monsoons come, a third of that country disappears to rise in water from the monsoon. But rising sea levels will force that entire country, essentially, uh, to move. There will be climate, migrant, uh, climate refugees. Right? And it doesn't take much effort to connect these dots between environmental justice and human rights issues. Right? These things are connected. Jesus is very clear that we are to make the kingdom of God and justice our chief ambition. He says in Matthew that we ought to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his justice. Right? This language of seek first is make this your top, make this your top ambition. Right? We are to seek right, justice. We are to seek everything wrong being made right. And that includes, right, that extends to issues of the environment. And I think we need to consider our eschatology, which is what we believe about the end of things. We don't think that everything is just going to hell. We believe that God is going to restore everything. He's going to make everything wrong right. Uh, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And until that comes... We get to bear witness to what is coming down the pike. 
Our lives are meant to be a, refl- a little sneak peek or preview of what is to come. And if what is to come is a world where we live in harmony with God and with each other and with our natural environment, let's start to reflect that today. Let's give people a little glimpse, a little preview of what's to come. So that when people see that, they're like catching a scent of heaven. Right? Living a kind of a movie trailer kind of life. You know, justice is a hot topic these days. We hear cries for justice in our burning streets. We hear cries for justice from our burning planet. But in this protest, let us hear a call to repentance. To turn around. To come home. And to get reconnected. Because when we are connected to God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, His love and truth and justice flow to us and they flow through us, showering blessings instead of sin's curse. Thank you. Let me pray.